Uh, good to see everyone. Um, my name is Caleb Lee. For those of you guys that are new, good to see that we have some new faces visiting us today. It's already almost Easter, right? Easter is in two weeks. Um, I have this friend, he used to call it Easters. He's like, hey, hello, it's Easters. It's Easter, April 4th, two weeks. It's going to be um, Easter Sunday. And I've been in the book of John for what seems to be like a couple of years. I feel like I've been doing the book of John forever. I took a little break uh, because I wanted the end of the book of John to coincide with Easter Sunday. And so I waited a few weeks, preached on other topics and things like that. Uh, but in, in the book of John, Jesus, he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And that was way back in um, John 12. Right? So for almost five chapters, uh, John has been talking about Jesus' final instructions to his disciples. He's been um, doing a lot of preaching, and, and, and not preaching, but teaching. His public ministry is over. Right? Jesus is he's done t- preaching to the crowds. He's now just with his disciples, his uh, very intimate group of uh, his close friends, and he's been teaching them, giving them final instructions. These, You guys are the ones that are going to go out and you're going you're gonna to flip this world upside down. And he's been giving him them just to, well, what it is to be in him, remain in me, and I in you, like abide in me. And he's been giving him um, these teachings, these final, um, like a final pep talk. And then last time I preached out of John, I, I started on John 18, and it was Jesus getting arrested, right? Judas... You guys all know Judas. Uh, he sold Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Gets uh, sick, like a big group of soldiers. The, the Bible says it's a band of soldiers. That word group uh, in the Greek is cohort. Right? It's, it's, it's a different word, but it basically it's talking about a cohort. A cohort in the Roman army was um, anywhere between like 400 to 600 men. Right? And so I don't think it's that many men came to arrest Jesus, but I believe it's more than four, like four or five soldiers, right? Um, the religious leaders, and they were kind of afraid of Jesus. He's been doing some crazy things, right? He's been like, you know, doing miracles, raising the dead. They don't know what he's capable of. And so they come, uh, just one man, Jesus, you know, this, you know, is, uh, is a teacher and a carpenter, but they bring all these soldiers to arrest Jesus, and they seize him, right? And, and it's a big mob that come to, um, and today we will read um, about one of the most famous denials in history, right? You know, I remember when I was a little, when I was in high school, and me and my sister went to school together for one year. Uh, I was a sophomore, and she was a no for two years. I was, a, and then I was, a, I was a freshman, and she was a junior, right? It was just two years older than me. And I remember when I first came to high school, and I saw my sister, I was like, Jenny, hey! And then she straight up denied my existence. She just looked at me and just walked away and said, I don't know. I'm like, oh. And I realized, like, my sister was a terrible person. Um, but, like, that's kind of what G- Peter does here. It's, like, one of the most famous denials in the history uh, uh, that we know of. And um, it's kind of crazy because Peter, out of all the disciples, was probably the closest to Jesus, right? Peter experienced things that none of the other disciples experienced. One thing, he walked on water with Jesus, right? All the other disciples were watching him do this, but Peter walks on water with Jesus, right? He, he experiences, you know, like the miracles. Uh, Peter and along with James and John were the only three disciples to see the transfiguration, right? You guys know about the transfiguration is Jesus, and then next to him appears Moses and Elijah, right? So they're transfigured. It's like this like picture of just like all of the, the greatest prophets and the, the people of God, and he experiences these things, uh, in himself, he, he 
you know, like, he tells Jesus, it's ride or die, right? He's like, I'll go anywhere with you. I will die with you, right? He's like, Peter is the one that, that is always like all in on Jesus. He's the one that when Jesus asks, like, who do the people say that I am? And they're like, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Some say you're Elijah. You know, some say that you're Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And then Jesus asks, who, who do you say that I am? And Peter's like, you're the Christ. You are the son of the living God, right? And so Peter, to deny Jesus like this, you know, I asked the question, what happened to Peter, right? What happened? And, and what's going on in Peter's heart? What is happening in this guy's heart? Well, here's the one thing. Um, if you were really honest with yourself, right? If we're really honest with ourselves, it's easy to understand what's going on with Peter. Because this is the kind of things that happens in our hearts many times, right? We'll go through seasons like this or moments like this in our lives because fear is a powerful motivator, right? You know, like, I, I don't like to motivate my children with fear. I really don't. But like, it's like the only thing that works. Ezra's at this age where he's just realizing that he can get away with anything, right? And so he'll just like willfully just look at me and I, I'm talking to him and just like, like, like he doesn't even acknowledge my existence, like my sister, right? And so I have to be like, oh, I'm going to give you a meme, right? I'm going to give you like a, like a spanking. And like fear is a powerful motivator. It's one of the, probably the, one of the most powerful motivators that we have. And when we're led by fear, especially the fear of man, um, it, it like, it, it causes us to do some silly things, some stupid things. Uh, so this is kind of showing the heart of Peter, is that Peter, right, when when Jesus is with him and when Jesus is, you know, everything's good, he's like, oh, I'm all in, you know, ride or die. But then as soon as, like, a little bit of fear enters his heart, we, we you see him turn away from Jesus quickly. So it's, it's, it's this picture of what happens to us when we are led by fear, especially the fear of man. But it also shows us something really amazing about the heart of Jesus and the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we're going to talk about that today. So today we're going to look at John 18, starting from verse 12. If you guys have your Bibles, you guys can turn to verse uh, 12 of John 18. And it says that, um, So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Right. So it's not just a few soldiers. It's a, it's a good number of soldiers and their captain, along with the officers of the Jews and um, all of the officials, the, the, the people of the high priest, they came and, and they arrested Jesus. They, they, at first they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would, it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So I want to stop right there, and I'm going to give you guys a little bit of a backstory about Caiaphas and Annas, right? His father-in-law. Um, there's, there's, who's heard of, heard, who's heard of Josephus? Right, Josephus was a, was a famous uh, Jewish historian during the first century, uh, during the time uh, of Jesus. And he recorded a lot of things, and he records um, many things about Caiaphas and, and this household of Annas. Annas was like the patriarch, right? He was like um, the, the main, uh, you know, the head figure of this family. And um, this Caiaphas was a high priest for that year, but he was also, this was also, um, uh, he was he was part of a family that was the priestly family that was in charge of administration of temple worship. So back then, right, just you know, the, you know, the the priestly line is the the, the Levites, right? They're 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 the lineage of um, the Jews that um, of the Israelites that are supposed to be um, 
the, the priests and the, the high, high priests and, and the temple people. And so, um, his family was the one that was in charge of administrating, um, temple worship. And, uh, it's kind of funny because yesterday, last night, I was in bed and then Mina, out of nowhere, just tells us this to Ethan. She, he, she's like, you know how long time ago when people sinned, um, you had to bring an animal, right? And then they had to kill that animal and the blood had to flow and you had to sacrifice it to God, uh, for the forgiveness of your sins. And I was like listening to Mina say this to Ethan. I was like, well, violent, but it's the truth, right? I thought it was very timely that she would talk about this because this is what I was going to preach on today. Um, and then she explains about Jesus being the sacrificial lamb. But back then when an animal was brought to be sacrificed, right? And like, I, I bring this, um, goat or this, you know, sheep or whatever. It had to have no blemishes. It had to be a perfect animal, right? And if there were any blemishes found on the animal, it could not be, um, offered, offered as a sac- sacrifice to God. Uh, but what they had were these little, like right outside of the temple and like within the temple, they had these people that were selling animals that were perfect. Um, and for a very high price, somebody can, you know, if their animal was blemished, they can go and buy uh, one of the animals that were that were selling to give as a sacrifice to God, and so this is this is what this family was in charge of, right? They were in charge of all of the things that went into temple worship. Now, on top of that, um, you know, there was the whole thing of the temple tax. Back then, in the temple, there was a certain currency that was used to pay the temple tax, right? And it, and it was usually the currency of that uh, of Jerusalem in that in that area. And if, a lot, if people from all around, like, you know, Judea and Samaria and all these people, Jews were coming to Jerusalem to make their sacrifices and going to the temple, they had to pay the temple tax, but they had to use the currency that the temple used, right? They couldn't just, you know, give like, you know, some kind of coin from some other country. And so they had these currency exchange people, right? The kind that you see in Itaewon. I don't know if you've ever been there. But they had these currency exchanges, and so the people would come, and they would give them, you know, whatever the land money that they come from, and they would give them um, at a very high exchange rate, it was very high exchange rate, uh, the currency of money that you can give to the temple. And so uh, this is this is kind of like the family that um, Caiaphas is from. So this family was not really liked by many Jews. But their livelihood and their greed was connected to temple worship, right? It was, it was just like, it was such a, and this was the re- elite, religious elites, right? And when Jesus came, and you know, you've all seen, you know, when I was a little kid, I would see, um, in VBS or in my Sunday school, these pictures of Jesus flipping over the table in the temple and he's, he's whipping people with the whip. Well, that's what, when Jesus did that, right? The, the people that really, like, got hurt the most was Caiaphas and his family. He's like, like Jesus, they had something really good going. They had, they had this thing where they were making a lot of money, and they were like very important people, right? They're the ones that were in charge. And Jesus comes and he just flips them over. He's like, "My house shall be a house of prayer," right? You've made it like a like a, a den of robbers. You're like robbing the people. You're like exploiting the people um, in the name of God. And 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 then he comes and he just like cleans house, right? There's always this picture. Jesus is jacked. I don't know why, right? Like I remember watching this. He his like his whatever he's wearing would come up, and his arms would be like mad big. And I'm like, I want to be a carpenter, right? He's, he's jacked, right? And so when he did that, it was messing with Caiaphas and Annas's family. So this is why the religious leaders hated Jesus, right? They hated Jesus not only because Jesus was claiming to be the Son of God, which is blasphemy to them. 
And, and not only was it that Jesus was saying that Gentiles can have a relationship with God, which is also blasphemous, but it was also like, with an affront to their self of superiority and godliness. Right? It's like, we're the Pharisees, we're the Sadducees, we're the people that are really important here. And then Jesus comes and saying, like, people from all the nations can have a relationship with God. And all of a sudden, they're like, like, what's this guy saying, right? It was, it was attacking their pride. And then Jesus was pointing out their hypocrisy. Just that they're like, they were dead inside. They were like, you know, Jesus calls them like whitewashed tombs with, you know, dead people's bones. And they're brood of vipers. They're hypocrites, right? And so they wanted Jesus dead, right? And so back in John 11, we read this a while ago, we read these religious leaders that were thinking and, and planning, and they had a meeting, right? They had the Zoom call, and it was a lot of the religious leaders were gathered there at the time, and, and, and they had just, to bring this into context, they had just seen Jesus raise a man from the dead, right? Lazarus was dead for many days, right? Like, like, I think like three or four days he's been dead, and all of a sudden, Jesus comes and he raises him from the dead. And then the, the religious leaders gather and they have this meeting and this is what they say. Many of the Jews, therefore, had, had, who had come with Mary, had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priest and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. Right? They're going to take away our place in life, our authority, and our good standing, and everybody looking up to us, they're going to take that away, they're going to take our nation away, they're going to take our temple away. But one of them, Caiaphas, right? this is the same Caiaphas that we read about earlier, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, the, on, on, the, on from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Now this is a crazy thing. Caiaphas was a high priest. He said this, and John is saying it was a prophetic word that went out, and he didn't even know it was a prophetic word. Right? He prophesied that Jesus would die for the nations, for 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 his people. He prophesied without knowing that what he was doing. He didn't realize how profound his words would end up being. Because the time had come for God to fulfill his plans. And Caiaphas didn't know that this was God's plan all along. That one man, Jesus, would die, not just for a nation, but for all the nations. Because the signs were all there. Right? Jesus was doing signs left and right, right? And yet they couldn't see him. They couldn't see Jesus for who he was. You know, he, he was, he, he was saying all these things. He was teaching in the, in the synagogue every day. He would go out there. You see him teaching. All these people were coming and listening to him out in the open. They all had an opportunity to see him believe, and yet they could not see him for who he was, right? These religious leaders. There's a parable that Jesus tells in Luke 16 where it's, it's about a rich man and Lazarus. And, and, and it says, There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen 
and who, who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried and in Hades being in torment. So there's a rich man, he goes to hell, goes to hell. Poor Lazarus goes up to heaven, is at Abraham's side. Was in, and the poor man was, the rich man was in hell in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like, in like manner bad things, but now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. I right? saying like, you know, there's a separation between where you're at and where we're at and no one can cross. And then the, poor, the, the rich man who's in hell says, then I beg you, Father, to send him I, I, so then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. He's like, please, send Lazarus so he can go to my parents' house, because I have all these brothers, and they need to know, right? That, 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 you know, they need to do whatever it takes not to end up here. And Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. And he said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Right? I tell this parable because it's really an indictment at the heart of the Pharisees and the people that ultimately will reject Jesus Christ. Is that right, They have the Old Testament. right? They have, the, they have all of the words of the prophet. And, and there's this condition in their hearts that is so like, like, you know, it's far gone that even if they see a man come back from the dead to warn them, they still won't get it. They still would not listen to him. And these are the religious men who are the ones entrusted to know so much more about God than all the other people of Israel, and they can't get it. Even if a man comes back from the dead, like Jesus, he'll come back from the dead, they still will not understand. And this is the picture of these religious men, these religious elites. They see signs upon signs. They see Jesus raise the, uh, raise a dead, from the, you know, uh, bring to life a dead man. They see him multiply food. They, they hear about all of the, the miracles and the healings and the casting out of demons. And yet, they see all these signs and they still cannot believe. All they're thinking about is their power. All they're thinking about is authority. And all they're thinking about is their money and their greed and how they are viewed by the people. And this is what happens when people are led by their flesh, by their pride, by their greed. It's called self-preservation mode. Right? They want to preserve, preserve what they have and so they can't see Jesus for who He is. Why? Why can't they see Jesus? Because Jesus is not about preserving yourselves. Right? He's not about preserving your, your life. 
saving yourself because he knows that no matter what they do, no matter how much you know power they have, how much influence or how much authority that they may have, how elite they might be, they can't save themselves. No one can save themselves. Because Jesus is not about saving ourselves, not about self-preservation, but about dying to ourselves. Dying to Christ, dying to ourselves, putting all of our hopes in Jesus. Right? And Paul says it like this, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's what Jesus is about, right? What are these religious elites about? They're like, oh, we gotta, like he's doing all these signs and miracles and wonder, they're gonna start following him and then the Romans are gonna take away our stuff, they're gonna take away our authority, they're gonna take away our nation, they're gonna take away our temple. Right? Our livelihood is at stake here. We gotta kill Jesus. But you know what? This is what happens when we, as Christians, go into self-preservation mode. We can't see Jesus. Have you ever really been in like a pickle? Have you ever like really had like a problem in your life? Something happens. Your circumstances just go out of whack. And the moment that you start thinking about preserving yourself, what can I do to save myself? What can I do to get out of this trouble? What can I do to, to get out of this, this situation in my end? You know, what you're not seeing, right, is what God can do. So many times when I get, you know, when, when, when I get stressed, and, you know, like me and I tell you, I get stressed a lot. Something will happen, I get all stressed. And I start to think like, oh, what can I do? I need to do something. Like, I need to, I need to Google this, right? I, I Google everything, right? How do I solve this problem, right? How can I fix this? Right? And as soon as my mind goes into that self-preservation mode, what I'm, what I'm failing to see is Jesus. I'm failing to see what God can do in this situation. I told you earlier, fear is a great motivator. And when we're motivated by fear, fear causes us, us to react, right? And we act in fear out of our flesh, out of our abilities, out of our understanding. We lose sight of what God can do, what Jesus can do. What God's plan is for this situation. For these religious men, God had a plan. They just could not see it because they were too caught up in, in saving themselves, preserving themselves. They see the very miracles with their eyes, right? They know that it happened. They know that Lazarus was raised from the dead and they're like having a meeting, planning out like how are we going to solve this problem? Because if this man keeps on doing this, the, the fact that he's the Messiah is the farthest thing from their mind. You know, like if I was a religious man and I knew the Bible, I knew the Old Testament, and all of a sudden this is this man that comes and he's just doing miracles left and right, like, right? And just people are just like following him and he'll say something and I hear it and I'm just like, this is amazing what he's talking about. There's going to be a little bit in my heart that says maybe he's the Messiah, right? But these people, they're just hard, they're just hard, are so hardened because of what? They're in self-preservation mode. It's like if Jesus it truly is, you know, what he says he is, you know, like, we can't let that happen. God had a plan. They just couldn't see it because they're so caught up in saving themselves. And so these men see all these signs. They see Jesus do amazing things. And yet all they can think about is preserving their lives, preserving their livelihood. Brothers and sisters, this is a struggle for us believers. It's not just a struggle for those religious reliefs out there. This is exactly what happened to Peter. Right? And this is exactly what can happen to us. Peter, 
Verse 15, where it says, Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did other, another disciple. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. So the other disciples, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl, who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, You are, all, you are not one of this man, this man's disciples, are you? And he said, I am not. Now the servant and the officers had made a charcoal fire because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves. Peter also was with them, standing and warming himself. So Peter's scared. He's like, he's like terrified. He's worried. And a a servant girl comes, right? This girl has no authority, right? And no authority. She has zero authority to do anything to Peter. And she's like, Aren't you, are, you're not one of those, one of the men that follow this man, are you? And he's like, no, I'm not. She's not no cop, right? And it's like, no, she's not a, a police officer. She, she has no authority. And yet, in the face of this little servant girl, right, she, he, he denies Jesus. Uh, no, I'm not, right? What is motivating Peter? It's fear. Saving himself. He can't, you know, like he's he's just he's just in this in this moment he's just stuck with fear and he's just like oh I'm not uh, I'm not a follower of this man and then in this moment what can't he see right right he can't see all of the moments that he had with Jesus when Jesus turned water into wine when Jesus fed thousands of people with just a few pieces of bread and some fish when Jesus healed countless sick and lame and blind and mute and, and people that were, were demonized he would cast out the demons with authority he would walk on water and Peter walked on water with Jesus he appeared with Elijah and Moses and Peter saw that with his own eyes when he raised Lazarus from the dead he was there he saw Lazarus who had died come back to life and in that moment he wants to save himself and he can't see Jesus this is the same Peter that was ride or die with Christ, right? The same Peter earlier in this chapter, chapter 18, he cut off the ear of one of the guys that came to arrest Jesus. He's, he's operating in fear. What changed for Peter, right? He was just like, I'm going to cut off your ear, ha-ta, you know, like, I'm going to ride or die with you, Jesus. I'll go anywhere with you. I'll die for you, Jesus. And then he's like, I don't know that man. Right? What happened? It's fear. Self-preservation mode. He's being led by the fear of man. And he's taking his eyes off of Jesus and he's focusing on his situation. You know, this is exactly what happens in our lives. The moment that things start to go out and we start being like, oh, I have to save myself. We take our eyes and our hearts off of Jesus. When we allow fear to grip our heart, and you know what? I'm preaching to myself here. This happens to me all the time. As soon as fear grips my heart, right? The first thing I do is, oh, what am I going to do? And in that moment, we take our eyes off of, off of Christ. And this is what happens to us, and this is what happened to Jesus, I mean, to, to Peter. And so he denies Jesus and stands next to a charcoal fire because it's cold. He doesn't want to look conspicuous. You know, when, when we're motivated by fear, especially the fear of man, not only does it lead to us to sin, but the worst thing is we lose sight of Jesus. 
it's not that we forget about Jesus, but we lose sight of who He is to us. We lose sight of what He has done for us. And our hearts and our minds start to focus on the problem, on the issues, on the circumstance, the fear. And what will happen to me? What will man do to me? Right? That's what happens to us. This is what happens when we allow fear to come into our hearts and, and grip our hearts. Especially the fear of man. Right? Now, a lot, you guys probably aren't afraid of many things in this life. Who's afraid of heights? Anybody here? Right. You might be afraid of heights. You're a pilot and you're afraid of heights. <laughs> like, like we, David and I, we went with the staff, we went bungee jumping. And I remember, I, 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 I had to be brave because I was telling them I, I'd done it before. And I was like, hey, come on, man, it's easy. I've done it before, man. You guys can do it. And we got up to the top and in the moment, I was like, dude, I'm scared. <laughs> like they had all jumped. I was the last one to jump and I was like, oh, I can't chicken out now, right? Like a lot of us in this world, we're probably not afraid of many things. We're not afraid of ghosts. No, we're not afraid of like you know monsters and boogeyman, right? But you know, we're many of us, even myself, we're afraid of man. We're afraid of people. We're afraid of what man can do. We, 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 This is something that that Jesus, especially, is trying to tackle in the lives of the church today. Is that we? So many of us, we walk with the fear of man. But what happens as soon as we take our eyes, as soon as we allow that fear to grip our hearts, we take our eyes off of our Savior. We take our eyes off of Jesus. And then in verse 19, it says, The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teachings. Jesus answered him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Are those who have heard me what I said to them... Uh, ask those who heard me and what I said to them, they know what I said. When he said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hands, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I say is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. The high priest is trying to get him to incriminate himself, right? He needs to get him to incriminate himself because... You know, as the Jewish people under all Roman law, they had no authority to execute anybody, right? They, they had their own court system. This is part of the court proceeding. But ultimately, there needed to be something that he said or something that he done that would incriminate himself and so that they can tell the Romans to execute him, right? He questions him about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus is like, I haven't been keeping this a secret. This is not a secret, right? You guys have, everybody has had, I was teaching out in the open in the synagogues. Everybody could hear me. Everybody can see me and what I was doing. This is not, I wasn't doing like the sneaking so that you wouldn't know what I'm doing. I was doing this out in the open. You guys have all heard and you guys have seen and you can go ask the people that I was teaching and preaching to. And, and, and he's basically saying, if what I have done is wrong, prove it to me. Show me in the scriptures. Right? He says, bear witness about the wrong that I have done. And then, and this, this dude, you know, I don't know who he is, he goes and he slaps Jesus, he's like, how dare you talk to the high priest this way? Now they had the Old Testament scriptures, they had the, the prophets, they had Moses. Now these religious leaders had, had major portions of the Torah memorized, and yet, they see the come, they see the, the Messiah, the, the Son of God, 
in person, face to face, and they cannot perceive him. He's out in the open. He wasn't hiding, right? It wasn't like he'd like gather all the people in like one house and be like, shh, lock the door, everybody. And then teach, you know, like all secretly and like, hey, nobody tell anybody what I say. Like he was out in the open. He was in the temple, right? Where they're, where they are supposed to be, right? These religious leaders are supposed to be there and they hear him and they see him and yet they are not able to perceive him. It's an indictment against their unbelief. It's an indictment against their unbelief. But here's, here's my closing statement. I'm going to end with this is that although Jesus is on trial here, because this is their court system, but actually these people are on trial. It's the religious leaders, it's Judas and it's Peter that are on trial. And what sets these people apart, right? When, when God is looking at them and what sets the, the religious leaders and Judas and Peter, what sets them apart is one thing, it's repentance. That's the heart of my message today. At the, first, the religious leaders, their hearts are so hardened that they can't even see Jesus. They see Him preaching out in the synagogues. They see Him doing these signs, these miracles and wonders. They're able to, to see and, and, and they have the Old Testament. They have the scriptures to go by and, 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 and study and say, oh, maybe this is the, the Messiah. Maybe this is the Son of God. But they're too prideful. They're too selfish. They're too greedy. You know, their hearts are, hearts are so hard that they cannot perceive Jesus at all. And so they go down in history as the ones that put Jesus, the Son of God, to death. And then we have Judas, right? He was one of the disciples and he sells Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. And what happens to him, right? He's so remorseful. He so feels so guilty that he goes and he hangs himself and he dies. But Judas is not repentful, right? Being remorseful and being repentant are two different things. Judas was remorseful. He felt bad. He did something bad to Jesus, right? Who loved him. And instead of repenting and turning from his sin, right, and, and looking to Jesus, he goes and he kills himself. Right? Being remorseful and feeling sorry for what you did is different than repenting and turning from your sin and facing Jesus and putting your faith in him, right? I believe Judas God gave Judas every chance to repent. It's not like he didn't have the ability to repent. I believe Jesus gave him plenty of times to repent. He just couldn't repent. And he felt so bad. And he just went and killed himself. So there's this difference between being remorseful and being repentant. And lastly, we have Peter, who so famously denied Jesus three times. Right? He's, he's, a, he's like the bonehead disciple, always messing up. He's like, oh, Jesus, I'll go anywhere with you, right? I'll do anything. I'll go, I'll follow you to the ends of the earth. And then they're like, the little girl says, like, aren't you one of those guys? They go, no, I'm not. But what, but what happens to him? Well, later in the book of John, and it's in the last chapter of the book of John, he has his encounter with Jesus, right? In John 21. And, and Jesus this is after Jesus has resurrected from the dead, right? He resurrected from the dead and he appears to his disciples a few times. And in and John 21, he talks about this kind of like this, this, this encounter that, that Peter and, and that some of the disciples have, uh, with Jesus. And it says, um, it says that, uh, Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, John and James and some others were by the sea and, and Peter decides to go fishing, right? 
And this is just my interpretation of what I feel that what's happening is that Peter's walking in remorse right now. Right? He denied Jesus three times. He feels ashamed. Right? He can't face Jesus. He does, he, no, Jesus, although he came back from there, he's like, oh, Jesus will have not. He's not going to want to have anything to do with me. So what does he go back to doing? He goes back to his old job, fishing. Right? Up to this point, he's been a follower of Jesus. And all of a sudden, Jesus dies, raises up from there. He's like, you know what? I'm going to go back fishing. I'm going to go back and do what I did before Jesus called me. And so there's this picture of him being remorseful. He's, re- he's remorseful before, before Jesus. And so he goes back to his old job fishing and he's doing a bad job at it because you know he's, he hasn't caught any fish. And then they see a man far away and they don't know it's Jesus. And he comes and he's like, do you have any fish? And they're like, no, we haven't caught anything yet. And he's like, like, go and cast your net on the right side of the boat. And all of a sudden they do and they're like, ah, oh, there's so many fish, they can't even bring it on board, right? And then at this moment, Peter realizes that this is Jesus. And then what he does is, he puts on his clothes, because, you know, when they fish, they fish naked, I guess. So he says, he put on his outer clothes, and then he jumps in the water, and he starts swimming for shore. And he finally gets to shore, and the disciples all come to shore. And then Jesus has this charcoal fire burning. Remember the last time we, we, we heard about a charcoal fire, what was happening? Peter was denying Jesus. He was standing, warming himself in front of this charcoal fire. And they're like, Aren't, don't you know this guy, Jesus? He's like, no, I don't. No, he's trying to be in the conspiracy. And then all of a sudden, Jesus has his charcoal fire going. And, and, and I believe this is Jesus' gentle reminder to Peter about what he has done. And he's gentle. Right. He, just, he just has a charcoal fire. He doesn't tell him, You did that a few times, Peter! Right? I would have said that. I'm like, dude, what are you doing here, man? Did you, did you pretend you didn't know me? How did go? Right? No, but Jesus, he just has this charcoal fire going. And then Jesus starts to make breakfast for them. And then they, and they start to eat. And he says, when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him, second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said, he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Truly, truly, I say to you, when you were young, you used to dress yourself and walk wherever you wanted, but then you're old, but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will dress you and carry you where you do not want to go. And verse 19 says, this he said to show by what kind of death he was going to glorify God. And after saying this, he said to him, follow me, right? And so the, Peter has this amazing encounter with Jesus. He just, he just like, you know, like denied Jesus three times, right? Stone cold, say, I don't know that man. And then Jesus comes back, and Peter's remorseful. Just like Judas, he feels bad. But Peter goes beyond remorse and repents of his unbelief. And the fruit of that repentance is seen in the life that Peter lives, right? Peter lived an amazing life, you know that? He chose to be, to be, to be, uh, uh crucified upside down because he felt that being crucified regularly was too, he was unworthy to be the crucified in the way that Jesus was crucified. He, he's, he's the pillar of the church, right? He becomes the pillar of the church. 
And in, in the book of Acts, right, this is the same Peter that would always like stick his foot in his mouth and mess up and have the wrong answer for Jesus. Right? All of a sudden, he, he's filled with the Holy Spirit and he goes on and preaches a sermon that brings 3,000 people to know the Lord. And he goes and he's a part of the church that spreads the gospel to the ends of the world. And ultimately, he's martyred for his faith. He experienced, you know, how was he able to do this, right? How? How, how did this Peter that was such a, it's a mess up, always like messing up and always, you know, denying Jesus and, you know, being, feeling all sorry for himself. He goes on to live this extraordinary life. How, how did he do it? He experienced the love, the grace, and the mercy of Jesus Christ. And it was led to true repentance. The Bible says it's his kindness that leads to repentance, right? You guys have to see, so many of us, we feel like God is this, this vengeful, hateful person up in, this being up in heaven that's always just like, like waiting to cast us away, but we fail to realize that He is so loving, He is so graceful, He is so merciful. And you know, we will, brothers and sisters, we will have times in our lives where we will struggle with unbelief. If you think that you're never going to struggle with unbelief, right, you're fooling yourself. We will all have seasons of unbelief in our life. We will lose our focus from Jesus and place it in the things of this world. We will have seasons in our lives where we feel like, oh man, what am I going to do to save myself here? Right? But what brings us back, what will make us all make all the difference in our lives is when we encounter the true and amazing love and the amazing grace and the amazing mercy of Jesus Christ. Because it's His kindness that leads us to repentance. And without repentance, we will not see the kingdom of God. You see what happened to Judas. You see what happened to the religious leaders. What sets them and Peter apart. They, they In essence, they both they all screwed up, right? They all screwed up. And when Ethan and Ezra come to me, and Ethan is the first one to point his finger, it's like, Ezra did that. And I was like, but you guys both messed up, right? <laughs> I know that he made this mess, but you also made this mess. Like you guys, you guys both screwed up, right? But what, 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 what made Peter, what set Peter apart is not what he, is not so much what he did. It was the posture of his heart. He came to Jesus and faced Jesus and Jesus was able to say, you know what? I'm, I'm choosing you, Peter. You know, I'm giving you this chance. To, you're going to do an about face. You're going to face me and you're going to go and you're going to live an extraordinary life for me. And he was able to do this because he experienced the grace and the mercy and the love of Jesus Christ. We will all face unbelief in our lives and we will all have moments like Peter. But ultimately it's how we learn to repent and turn to Him that's going to make all the difference in our life. Let's all stand up. And I'm going to close us with prayer and, and benediction.